Hey everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 26 of Music on the Run. My guest today, the guitar slash bass player in Sir Paul McCartney's band, Brian Ray, is next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 26. Can you believe it? 26 of Music on the Run. I've had so many great guests grace this show. And, you know, everybody has a different story. Um, and that's what's so cool about this. You get a little education as you're getting entertained. And, uh, you know, they always have stories about how they deal with life on the road. And today is no different. Um, this guy, um, been fun to get to know. He has had two incredible long-standing gigs that span most of his career. He's a singer-songwriter, uh, artist, producer from SoCal, uh, and we'll talk about who he's toured with. I'm not going to give it up yet, but please welcome my buddy Brian Ray. Hey, how, you doing? Good how to are see you, my friend? Thank you. How you doing, Paul? You all right? We're doing great. How, where are you in this crazy COVID? Uh, post-election world uh not quite post-election but uh <laughs> at the time of this taping you're you are correct oh, yeah. yeah anyway um yeah i'm in palm springs california which as you might know just from the name is a desert out in uh outside of los angeles in riverside county about two hours from my home uh, out near the beach in los angeles Nice. You know that my sister has spent so much time in Palm Springs. In fact, I think the last 15 years, and I'm surprised I haven't brought this up to you. My sister Linda does a lot of the club circuits out there during the winter. Oh, really? Yeah. And she'll be coming out. I will let you know where she will be. Um, so you have a couple different places. I saw an interview with you about, um, where they were doing a piece on your guitar collection and that house in Palm Springs is fabulous, man. You have a Les Pool out in the backyard. I have a pool shaped like a Les Paul. So I thought, why not go the extra mile? And oh, my God. That is just... made for the jacuzzi part of it. I'm looking at it right now. Why not get a logo made in tile that says, just like the Les Paul guitar in that script kind of font, it says less pool. So, I mean, why, why wouldn't you go for a laugh? Why wouldn't you do that, Brian? Of course you'd do that. You know, it, it was just, it's such a great pad. I mean, I'm looking over the desert right here and, and I feel so lucky and so blessed to have a getaway pad because yeah. I've been going to the desert forever, you know, as a place for a little peace and quiet and solace, a getaway, nature, good air. Um, and, uh, so when it came time to maybe 
we went to a wedding out here and yeah. as you do, sometimes you get like kind of, you fall in love with it wherever you are, if you're there for a couple of days. And that happened again here, started looking around. Oh, it was my big mistake. I started looking at properties and yep. before you knew it, I was in the middle of buying one and it was really cool with this view, but it had a pool, but it was more of like a rumor of a pool. It was almost the size of a spa. Okay. Like, this pill-shaped thing. And I thought, oh man, am I going to do this? Am I going to make a pool? And then, then I started thinking, well, if I'm going to make a pool, why don't I make a custom pool? How much more does that cost? Well, substantially more, but I decided, okay, what if it was a guitar and I was going to do an acoustic guitar, you know, right. where the, the two sort of shoulders are equal and then there's the waist in the body. And then someone else said, why aren't you doing a Les Paul? And I thought, you know what? You're right. The stairs could be where the, that little one cutaway that goes like right. that, that could be the stairs in. And that's what we did. Oh, well, why not have fun, man? You only, you only live once. That's what they say. That's right. So for the people listening, Brian and I know each other through a mutual friend by the name of Oliver Lieber. Yes. And we will get to um, playing together little later down the line but brian actually had me come and play with his band the bayonets uh man how many years ago was that that's like five years ago or something that has to be Crazy. six years ago by now believe it or not Jeez. Well, maybe more like five anyway yeah my band with oliver lieber you know we we are partners in a band called the bayonets right. and uh, we uh were really lucky to have you on board for what a good week or something like that rehearsals hanging then I think we just did really only one gig though, right? The we did. Party. Yeah. And it was so much fun, man. What wow. a great, I just saw footage of that when I was doing my research for this. I'm like, that's right on the porch of that house. What a cool place for a, uh, a record release party too, by the way. Yeah. Right. So it's a, a club for those that don't know, uh, in Los Angeles called no vacancy. And it's built in one of the oldest, structures in los angeles built around the time of the very first buildings in los angeles probably 1905 and it's it was a, a huge estate by by those standards back then and uh it, it used to be right there on hollywood boulevard but uh funny detail they actually instead of tearing the place down they moved it back you gotta be kidding me so now you enter off the, the street behind it, and that's where it sits to this day. And then there's all these shops and restaurants in front of it. But uh, yeah, No Vacancy LA and uh, this really cool hip group that has a bunch of clubs in LA took it over, mm. renamed it. And uh, we played on what used to be the front porch uh, yeah. of, the, uh, of the old mansion. And, uh, and, and I think our guests would enter from the back, right? Right. They'd come in speakeasy door. They'd need a password. They'd come up a stairway. They'd go down a hall with numbered rooms, like an old flop house, like an old right, whorehouse. Right, right. And they'd come to the last one, whether it's 21, I think was the name, number of the room. They'd enter in, and a lady of the night in her 20s garb would let you in, and she had her stockings on, and you'd say the password, and the bed would go up like this, revealing a stairwell that you'd walk down into to get to the floor below it to enter the club unbelievable 
what yeah. a cool vibe that whole thing was. And it was it was but, so much fun to hang and play music with you. So I'm glad we got a chance to do that. Me too. Yeah, that was together. so fun. It sounded so good. Oh, I enjoyed it. All of it. Super fun. Well, let's go all the way back. I haven't told anybody who you played with yet. So you're going to have to stay tuned for that because, you know, I want to get to the important stuff. I want to talk about you. And uh, and then we'll get to the other folks that uh, you, you've played with. You grew up in Southern California, right? You, that's where you're born? Born and raised right here in Southern California. That's right. Um, okay. Born in a hospital in uh, Hollywood <laughs> called the Hollywood Presbyterian. That's now a Scientology Center. Oh, my gosh. And I have nothing to do with that. Yes, I, I know. Grown. You were born there. That's the only thing you have to do with that. That's right. Okay. Anyway, so then uh, we lived in Glendale, uh, which is next to Burbank, the, the gateway to Burbank, as many people call it. And then years after uh, that, when I was about nine, we moved out to the beach area. And that's where I lived until I uh, left home and started touring. And now I live back out there again now. Tell me about Gene Ray. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I want to hear about Gene yeah. Ray. Jean Ray is my sister. Uh, she's a half sister. Uh, we, uh, my father, uh, a daughter of my dad's from a previous marriage of his. Okay. Um, and Jean Ray was my idol and mentor as a young kid. She was 15 years my elder, right? And she loved me and cared for me. And she uh, used to kind of babysit. She lived with my family, but only for one year. Okay. Otherwise, she lived with other, other, in other residents. And uh, she would take me babysitting, while babysitting me, she would take me to her girlfriend's house around Glendale. And I was three years old, four years old, and she was playing me record 45 after 45 and showing me photos of Elvis, Little Richard, Everly Brothers, Chuck Berry, Rick Nelson. And all these uh, friends of my sister then were all like cooing over these guys. And I was like, yeah. just a little kid, just barely learning to speak and getting immersed in rock and roll. And, mm. and it was right then looking at the expressions on their face and the sounds they were making. I said, okay, this is what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Smart man. I never looked back. I swear to God. Did anybody else in your family play at all, or no, did they no, just now when uh, just a few short years after that, Jean joined up with a young gentleman that she had met and started to uh, started to play along uh, in sort of a folk period hmm. with the new Christie Minstrels, which was sort of a renegade changing group. Sure. Uh, and the two of them met and bonded there. Then they went solo as Jim and Gene, and they had a record label on Verve uh, Folkways. Okay. Um, and uh, they did four albums, I think, uh, total, and uh, were remarkable. They were really great. I listen to those records still to this day, and I'm blown away. People like Harvey Brooks on bass from Bob Dylan's band and from the Electric Flag. Uh, Al Cooper on piano, organ, and guitar from uh, Like a Rolling Stone with Bob Dylan and many others. He played that organ part. So I was around these people as a young kid at seven years old and just going like, 
odd, like, this is so fucking cool, you yeah. know? And uh, so I was very inspired, and I went to their early gigs at the age of eight or nine, and just kind of drinking in the, the club scene, like the Ash Grove yeah. and the Ice House and the Troubadour and the little sort of red candles with the net over them. And, you know, I was just like, I was all in. You know? Yeah. So when does... When do you start playing your first instrument? I'm assuming it's guitar. So funny story. If you want to talk about my first instruments, my brother was given a guitar by my parents for Christmas or birthday. I don't remember what. And it was a Gibson LG one from 1961. And uh, he was a lefty, but they bought him a righty. So he played it the other way. And as a righty, and didn't really bond with it, but he learned about five chords. And I was like, Steve, show me the chords. <laughs> and he would like show me the chords and I'd fumble and my fingers would be all sore and I'd like fumble some more. And pretty soon I showed a real interest in it and kept going. Well, rather than giving me the guitar, the parent, my parents gave it to my little sister and which was a little weird, but that's okay. And then later, Gene, my sister gave me a $5 nylon string guitar from Tijuana, Mexico, and it was my everything. You know, mm. it was like literally a piece of junk, and I yeah. loved it. And that's where I really learned to play. Wow. So you got passed over on the hip guitar. Like, nope, you're not getting this one, Brian. Sorry, that's going for this cute little girl over here. I've been breaking their backs ever since. <laughs> I'll show you. Uh, and they're probably going, the only reason you're doing as good as, good as you are is because we didn't give you that guitar. That's right. You had and, to reach for it. Yeah. So, okay. So um, you have, from that point, obviously you go through your schooling and you do all that. Get me and tell, get me to the point of, and tell me about a brief story about Phil Kaufman. Okay. Well, so my big first break uh, was playing a, a fundraiser for Phil Kaufman. Phil Kaufman, many people would know as, as the sort of notorious guy involved in Graham Parsons parting with this mortal coil. Yes. I won't go farther into it than that. But, Graham but Par re research it because it's a fascinating story. We don't have to do that here. It's the best story ever. It, it really is. With us, he lives in Nashville, Phil Kaufman. Um, so I was playing at a fundraiser to pay for the legal bills from said mishap, uh, caper, whatever you want to call it. And I was there with Bobby Boris Pickett doing the Monster Mash. It was that time of year. Uh, that's the original artist who did the, did the song Monster Mash. And I was a member of his band. That was my first gig. And it was called Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kicker Five. And uh, it was sort of my high school band, plus my sister, Jean, and a couple of other women. And my high school band, backing up uh, Bobby Boris Pickett, we were all in ghoul makeup. So we were a little bit crip kickers. Oh, wow. Okay. Makeup, which, you know, I had no idea what I was walking into. We were playing a benefit for a crip kicker, basically. Right. And, uh, so there we were. Um, and I just kind of bonded with Phil Kaufman. Well, quickly, Phil Kaufman also was road managing, um, was road managing Etta James. And Phil Kaufman kind of bonded with me. He just lost his best friend, Graham Parsons. Yeah. And he invited me to a rehearsal of Etta James. He said, 
you know, the guitar player can't make it. Would you be willing to come and play? And I said, are you kidding me? He had introduced me to her at the Troubadour, and I was just like blown away. She yeah, was, of course. You know, as we all know. So I go with him to this house in the Hollywood Hills and just jam with them. And Ed had turned to Phil uh, after a couple hours of jam and said, I like that little white kid. And, uh, <laughs> and then she came up to me at the end of it and said, would you like to come and play a, a gig with me tomorrow in Long Beach? And that was the beginning of 15 years as Ed James's guitar player and, and musical director from 74 to 89. What do you think you had, man, back in those days that Ada James would look at you and say, I want that little white kid. Why, I, why you? I was opposite of her, a little skinny, long hair, white kid from Glendale, where she was this worldly sort of recovering addict, mm. you know, a very different circumstance. Maybe it was the opposites thing. I really don't know. But I think what she recognized in me was I wasn't going to give her a hard time. I was young and green and I was just going to go. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, some of these other players were probably like, you know, where's my money? And I was like, whatever, let's go play. You know, (laughs) it was probably a little bit of just like, I got this one. Let me go with this guy. I don't know, man. She, but we were very, very close. Etta was like, really like a second mom to me. She was lovely. Um, She could be a hothead. And could, she, she could be very, very suspicious and all of that stuff. But the overriding truth about Etta James is that she was a magnificent person, very smart, very intuitive, very perceptive, and she was great to me. Golly. What? So you're there for 15 years. First of all, tell my listeners what a musical director does, will you? Just briefly. I'm not sure. If you find out, please call me back because that's what I've been saying I was. No. Um, Well, a musical director should uh, be the one to lead the band. Maybe would have firing and hiring responsibilities, would uh, keep the charts, the book of music that you would be playing, uh, would help to organize rehearsals, just, you know. It's the liaison between the artist, Etta, and the rest of the band. Kind of like that. Got it. When you, you were out with her, did you, did you play with some, you played with some other serious artists at that time who were coming around, like Keith Richards and Santana. Was that because of that connection with Etta? Were they sitting in with you? Or were you going off and playing with people like that? How did that all work? Well, yeah. Um, because Etta is who she was, uh, they loved her. They loved her. They wanted to be a part of her. She was just coming out of, as I said, an addiction and now had a new life and she was gaining the trust of the business while retaining and gathering a lot of respect and love from the musical community who had always loved her. They didn't know she was stealing deposits from promoters. They just loved Etta James's music and they wanted to be a part of it. People like, you know, Bonnie Raitt and Steve yeah. Stills and Graham Nash and David Crosby and Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones and, um, you know, all of them, Carlos Santana, just everybody, Van Morrison, just like everyone wanted to be around Etta, Dr. John. So we would always have these kinds of people coming to our shows 
and they'd be happy to go sit in. They'd be nervous. You have Keith Richards like nervous. And you're running the show. Well, you know, yeah. And uh, how cool is that? Now, and I go like, hey, Keith, lay out, lay out. You're playing too much, Keith. (laughs) No, no, more like I would be laying out because there was only one guitar player. So I'd hand him my guitar and then go sit in front of him. Oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So, your time with Ed, how did that change you as a musician? That must have formed you in your early years. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because, um, you know, I already knew what I loved, and I was a guy who was informed by the first rockers, then folk music, and then British invasion. And that oh, was yeah. everything. But then right alongside of that, I was discovering the music that informed the British invasion, i.e. American blues and rhythm and blues. Now, that had sort of a little bit sort of I had missed that as a kid, except that I did have a transistor radio and discovered pirate radio at the age of seven. I was hearing this rhythm and blues like, what is that? It's amazing. My first album was the Rivingtons, uh, wow. Papa Umau, uh, called Doing the Bird was the name of the album. And so I was into R&B, but I didn't yet know that Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Peter Green, Mick Taylor, uh, all these great players we're all taking from these great, you know, African-American black blues players and rhythm and blues players from the forties, fifties, early sixties. Yeah. So then I discovered that. So I was kind of an amalgam of all those things maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, so what Edda did was it was trial by fire, fire, you know, I I'd be playing a solo and she just look over at me and she'd go play. Play! And she just wanted to, you know, waste some more time. Meanwhile, I'm in my fourth chorus, like sweating bullets, running out of things to say. Right. But, you know, that's, of course. that's kind of how you learn, man. Yeah. You, know, she, you know, some great stories, man. My first gig with her uh, on a huge scale was at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Oh, man. And I was 19 years old, just had gotten with her. No, I just turned 20. We get there, and it's just me, Anetta, and her husband in Switzerland, her first time in Europe, my first time in Europe. No kidding. And I don't have any charts. And I don't know why I didn't bring them. I was a, I was a maniac. Anyway, I show up there, and they put together a band for her, which okay. includes John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. What? And, you know, Richard T. from Stuff, Rick Wakeman. You know, all these cats, you know, and right. I, here I am like, I'm 20. They're looking at me like, is that it? You just, yeah. this guy and no charts? They're suspicious, but it ended up going very well. And that you can see on uh, YouTube. That's uh, Edda no. James Montreux, 1975. Oh, I got to <laughs> see that, Brian. Remarkable. Yeah, she's, I mean, it, her performance at that is just like beyond her first ever performance in Europe. And she fell in love with them. They fell in love with her. I was there. I was a part of it. And yeah, yeah, pretty incredible. But anyway, there I was, you know, that's a trial by fire. And that's Mm -hmm. what I was just trying to, you know, describe. That's, that's, you know, learning. Nobody has a gig for 14 years, man. Nobody, nobody has a gig for 14 years. For, for those of you listening who don't know much about the music business, 
14 years is an eternity in a band as a side person. That does not happen as a rule. And you did 14 years there. And we'll talk about your next tenure next. My segue to that is, tell me a little bit about the Laboreals, Abe and Abe Jr. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, when I was in another band around the same time as Etta, Etta was nice enough to let me go and work with other people, do records and tour with other people. One of them was a band called Kraken. And they were on, uh, on Warner Brothers, and they were like a, a funk, hybrid, funk pop kind of little feet mixed with earth, wind, and fire, basically, wow. is what they were. Uh, multi-ethnicity, cool band, large-ish band. And um, when we were recording together in Hollywood for the first album that I did with them, there was this skinny guy walking down the street and said, that's Abe Laborial's. That's Abe Laborial. And of course, it was Senior, yeah. Abe's dad, the drummer's dad. Who my is my hero, the by the way, my absolute hero. Is that right? He knows that I told him before, and I told Abe Jr. too. <laughs> well, I love I'm, your dad, man. He's like, you get stand in line. So does everybody else. <laughs> For good reason. It's like, um, well, Abe Sr. is, I think, the most recorded bass player in history between him and nathan east yes yeah and uh so this was this is the late 70s and this was long before abe was well abe was five then yeah. <laughs> when i met when i met his dad and no idea about his son but i met abe senior when abe was five or six years old mm -hmm. anyway many years later uh, I would be uh, called for an audition for some French artists. Milan Farmer was one. And just after her, a year later, after getting that audition and getting the gig, an audition for Johnny Halliday, who was sort mm -hmm. of like a French Elvis, would yes. be the best way to... And they're both big acts, like arenas, stadiums, full production, crazy tricks, really fun. Um, and the drummer who won both of those gigs through his auditions was Abe Jr. Wow. And okay. we became very, very good friends, very close. I used to him. He was at our gig, and he, he sure loved was. your playing, that same gig you were talking about. Um, but, yeah, so Abe and I got to be very good friends while touring uh, all over France together. And at, a, at one point, about five years into those gigs, Abe was uh, about to consider coming back to France for one more gig, one more tour. I did it. And I got a call from him saying, I'm not going to go. I've got this opportunity. I'm going to be playing. I've got an album with Paul McCartney. Like what? <laughs> Can you just not wash your hand? Yeah, exactly. By that time you'll have shaken his hand and I'm going to need to shake that hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Abe does the record with Paul. I come back from France. And Abe is at a party, my, my birthday party. And I said, so, Paul McCartney, tell me more about it. And he's going, oh, my God, it was just so fun. He's so cool. He's so generous. It was great. It was very creative. It was like, oh, my God, I'm freaking out. Yeah. And I said, well, I know the other guitar player that's in it, um, Rusty, and I don't know who's going to be playing. Who's going who's gonna to play bass when he 
plays guitar or piano, and then wouldn't that person switch to guitar when he plays bass? He goes, yeah, we're looking for a guitar player who plays bass. And I said, I'd love a shot at that. We're going to break away from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, thank you to everybody who's embraced Funk Friday. We are having so much fun bringing a little joy to the internet every single Friday with a one-minute funk jam. So thank you so much for that. And if you like Funk Friday and you like music on the run and you want to become our partner and help us put those shows on, go to patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. Again, become our partner at patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And there you'll get all the information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast and get some pretty cool merchandise and incentives in return. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the patrons who've already signed up. We could not do this show without you. As always, thank you so much for supporting us here at Music on the Run. Now back to our interview. I'd love a shot at that. Oh, well, good on you, man, for speaking up. Like he hadn't thought of it. And, you know, like that was the one time where I thought, I'm going to shoot my hand up in the air and give it a go. And long story short, here I am. So, How many years was Sir Paul? Uh, Now I've been with Paul McCartney for 19 years. Yeah. No one has a gig for 19 years, Brian Ray. No one does. What really is up with you? It's crazy. What uh, is the, what's well, the secret of keeping... Okay, hold on a sec. First okay. of all, these are two unbelievable gigs. Yes. Get, getting the gigs is one thing. Keeping the gigs is something completely different. Oh, we all know that. It's so true. Well... You know, all I can say is the four of us in the band behind Paul, that's Wicks on keyboards and musical director, um, Abe, uh, Rusty, and myself, have all been there the same amount of time as a band. Now, Wicks was there years before as well, starting in 89, I think. Wow. Uh, so we were lucky enough to have somebody who, before Paul joined us for the first rehearsals, uh, knew where sort of the bones were, you know, in these performances and what to do so wix was able to sort of you know lay it out for us and help us as we learned the songs for five days before paul got there to join us for just six more days before our first gig literally that's how fast it was tell me a little bit about the rehearsal and and uh what you had to do before paul came in yeah so fortunately as i was saying so fortunately Wicks, having been there before on keyboards, could help lead us through the first few days of rehearsal before Paul arrived. So we had five days of rehearsal as a four-piece band learning 45 songs before Paul came in to play for six more days, and then we were on tour. That was it. And, um, you know, it was a lot, and it was exciting. It was thrilling. It was scary. I didn't really allow myself to call anybody and tell them I had the gig with Paul McCartney until that sixth day 
with yeah. him where he said, okay, guys, sounds great. See you tomorrow. Then I was like, oh my God, I think I'm going on tour. You got Park. the kick. Yeah. And uh, then, then it's all like you were saying before, it's like then keeping the gig becomes the thing. And that's, I guess, mostly about, you know, fitting in and establishing trust and having fun. And uh, I don't know, you know, being, uh, being fun to be around, being a good hang, you know? Yeah. Because you get, well, you guys play what, two and a half, three hours, but the other 21 hours, you're, you're not on stage and you got to, you have to be able to be compatible with these people, whether you're on the tour bus, bus or the jet or whatever the case may be on whatever tour at any level, it really truly is about the hang and in your ability to kind of find your way through that, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. I mean, and you don't get to be in a, any group for 19 years without some kind of friction here and there. And I'm not saying there hasn't been because, mm -hmm. you know, we're four grown men with uh, varying degrees of strong opinions, you know, and, and behaviors and stuff. And you're right. It, it, sometimes it's close quarters, but at least on tour, you know, we each have our own room so you can slide away and, and we're not playing six nights a week because it's Paul. So right. it's more like, you know, three. So you really do have quite a lot of four, let's say four nights a week. Yeah. Uh, you, you have quite a lot of time um, away from the pod. And, and that's how you restore your energy. Got it. So do you, do you consider yourself the bass player in this band? Or you get to do it all. I, I, I'm a guitar player, of, of course. And I learned to play bass better uh, because I, that was the job description is to be a guitar player who played some bass rather than a bass player who played some guitar, right? So yeah. I would just say I'm the guitar player who plays stunt bass and picked up a little <laughs> bass here and there. Stunt bass. I end up playing, you know, 60% of the show on bass because yeah. he plays whatever he wrote the song on or whatever he's comfortable playing live. And so most of the time he wasn't writing songs in the Beatles on bass. Yeah. That's just what he played when they played live. Right. Um, and all of his solo stuff was either piano or guitar centered when he wrote, as, as far as I know. Um, so it would default to me playing bass because he's going to be on piano or he's going to be on guitar or mandolin or ukulele or whatever, you know. So I've just got to be ready to play whatever he's not playing. You're the utility man. And so, so it is. It, so is he. Because he can do it all, you can do it all. What a blast. Well, he does it all a little more than I do, but uh, quite a bit. I mean, wow, Paul McCartney, you know, what an incredible, uh, what an incredible gift to humanity Paul McCartney is. He must, I mean, I take it, I've met him a couple of times once. Here's my brush with McCartney, okay? I was playing guitar in the Steve Miller band in 1992 or three. It was the first time Paul was going to play the, the Hollywood bowl since he had been there with the Beatles. So Steve and, and Paul knew, knew each other. And Ricky, my brother is, I think four or five years older than me. Cause I kind of missed the British invasion. Cause I was too tiny. 
Yeah. So Ricky, my brother, is also in the band. He's a keyboard player. Steve gets Paul to come on the bus, and my brother is having a meltdown. And <laughs> so we ended up uh, warming up uh, the McCartney, bef- I think, be- right before you got in the band. Well, when this is a get- good, good while before. So you're oh, talking okay. about uh, somewhere between 89 and 93. Probably 93. Yeah, it was, I think it was my last first- gig in the Steve Miller band. Okay, and that was the the first uh, iteration of Paul's band that Wix was in. Okay, all yeah. right, yeah, got it. That would have been Hamish in my role. Hamish Stewart from Average White Band, incredible singer, crazy good bass and guitar player, um, and uh, Robbie McIntyre uh, on on guitar. Sure, uh, Linda on the other keyboards. Right, yeah, she was there, and a, and a and a cavalcade of drummers coming through there sort of like spinal right. yeah 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 so well i can only imagine how you felt because i know how i felt the first time meeting him so what was that like for you i mean what was that brush well, like i i, I want to see if i still got hold on i'm gonna you gotta see this now talk amongst yourself talk amongst myself testing one two all has gone i had forgotten i had this. a picture so and of course, because it's Paul McCartney, I I've hung on to it all these years. I'll show this camera up here, but I'll I'll pan down to the camera that you can see here. Can you see that? I see the signature. Yes, I do. What's so th- that was the Earth Day special that we did. Oh, so yeah. just to to answer your question, it was more fun for me to watch my brother Ricky's reaction to Paul coming on and. We have it all on old video cassettes and videotapes and all that. Well, why was his reaction much different than yours? Is that generational? I was so, like supporting his love for the Beatles. I, I missed the Beatles just by a few years, so I wasn't as freaked out, right? Of course I'm freaked out to meet Paul, but it was more fun for me to watch Big Bro lose his mind, yeah. and I enjoyed that just as much. But anyway, my whole point is you're working with, what seems to be a really level-headed, cool guy who changed music. No doubt about it. I mean, there is no sort of equivalent in popular music that I can think of. A guy who was a writer, producer, arranger, player of many instruments, lead singer like Insane, and executive. Oh, right. Yeah, other things I probably am forgetting right now. I mean, the only parallel I can think of would be someone like Willie Dixon, who was, you know, the guy who wrote I Ain't Superstitious and yes. and who was uh, a bass player as well, producer, mm-hmm. writer, uh, an artist. And, uh, you know, he was all and an executive. He was all those things as well. What do you take from people like Paul and Etta? What do you learn and assimilate from them and apply into your own life and your career, maybe even more importantly? How does working with them affect your own life and your own artistry? Well, I mean, Paul has been such an incredible influence on me. Um, And also just having a sort of a steady job like that, you know, I I never call it a gig because that's like, it's more like, I don't know, it was like a, a life path more than it's a gig. 
Um, but anyway, that job that I have with him, you know, being consistent like that gave me sort of the wherewithal to say, okay, I'm, I've always loved writing a bit, singing a bit and arranging and recording, but always on a smaller level, like, you know, my four track cassette or yeah. a demo at some guy's studio time when it was like midnight or whatever. But now, you know, I had enough to make a bro deal at a studio and call in Abe or Matt Log and, you know, um, you know, Paul uh, Bushnell and these different guys, Scott Schreiner, and have them come and, and play with me in a real studio with a real engineer. And being around Paul also was such a great influence because you, you can't help but sort of absorb and internalize some of his, his ideas, you yeah. know? Like if you're in a band and you're pulling apart these songs and now you're, you're now performing some element of that song, whether it's guitar, bass, or vocals, you're, you're kind of learning this kind of a madness to his method. So it can't help but influence you. And um, so it was a great influence and it gave me enough of a little bit of money to go and record my first album in 2005, Mondo Magneto, right. with Abe and Scott Schreiner and all those guys I mentioned. And then another one in 2009. Um, and uh, so it gave me a lot and it inspired me so much. And it meant a lot when he pulled me aside on a flight to a, a show once and said, Ryan, I checked out your album, man. It's really good. And he started going into rhymes and drum sounds. And it was just like, wait, wait a minute. Can I go and record? Wait, can you do that again? Yeah. And, uh, this you know, would be great promotion. Hold on one second. Camera crew. Yeah. Right. And uh, so super, super inspiring and super grateful. And uh, interestingly enough, Etta inspired me in different ways <clears throat> because she was just such a strong, indomitable spirit. You know, she had survived so much mm -hmm. in her own personal life from heroin addiction and stuff. So that was more like, you know, call upon the warriors within and, you know, you're never, a cold isn't going to stop you from doing a show. It's not going to hurt your singing. Come on. You know, like just a sort of, you know, guts, yeah. guts, you know, got it. So maybe that helped me there. And, um, I would also say that Etta helped me so much because I was on stage with her at a very young age right. and got to love it and be comfortable with it. So that when it was time to play with Paul McCartney, although I had never played with Paul McCartney, I had played with some big names on big stages uh, under duress. So you, you, you get sort of, you know, tried by fire, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you've been on the road most of your adult life. For, just in case you don't know, Music on the Run is not only a music-based program, but it's also talking about how you manage your life when you're out there. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's cool as it seems, the, the luster wears off, man, at a certain point in time. Do you like being on the road? Yeah, I do. I mean, look, I am in sort of rare air to be able to play with um, Paul at that level. At that's Paul's true. Touring, so I'll I'll admit that that sort of 
helps, you know, um, going on tour and playing six nights a week in a van right. is another experience. And we've been <laughs> fortunate enough with Paul that that's not our scenario. Right. So you could, maybe that is another thing that uh, can answer the question, how do you stay together for 19 years? Well, yeah. but in a way that doesn't burn you out quite as bad. And then what? also, Paul's mood on the road and the way he carries himself is just so cool and light and he's fun and he's funny and he's interesting and, you know, he's just always up for it. He's never rolling his eyes. He's never a jaded second. He never acts like, oh, God, here comes Hey Jude again. He's, never, he's not that guy. He's just, right. he's just sort of all light energy and always grateful that he's Paul McCartney. It's, it's, it's remarkable. So that helps. I read a quote by him that said, we don't work music. We play music. Yeah. And that says a lot about him. And my brother's been saying that for years. My brother, Billy, whom you don't know that you will meet someday. He, that is his philosophy in life. He's all about that. Keeping things light. What a what a great boss to have that would that has that kind of an attitude. I don't know about you. I've had a different story sometimes on occasional gigs here or there. It's like, oh my god, what have I got myself into? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that doesn't end up being a good fit. And yeah. and and that's good. That's okay too. That's okay too. Yeah. So Brian, when you're on the road, do you ever do you, do you take time to get out and check out the cities you're in because i'm sure at this point with tra traveling with paul you're seeing some pretty incredible places for not the first time probably three four five six times you've done this already or more actually 19 times yeah do you get to get out and see the, the cities that you're in yeah good question i mean um one more reason why i guess i'm still liking it and i'm still doing it is because for me, I made a choice to stop drinking and using drugs uh, and drinking alcohol 33 years ago. So I was already on you. for like, uh, I was, my first gig with Paul was my 15th year anniversary as a sober man. So yeah. Uh, and so I think that helps a lot. And it also helps get me out of the hotel room early enough in the day to go and have a day. And not be struggling and hungover. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I was wondering if I was going to get all square and boring when I got sober. That wasn't my experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that's somebody else's, you know, <laughs> decision to make if yeah. I'm square or boring. <laughs> you think you're but exciting. I think I'm exciting. <laughs> I'm pure fireworks up here. Right. But anyway, yeah, I, I mean, it gives me a little bit more sort of um, uh, endurance, uh, joy, you know, energy. Yeah passion how do you stay healthy on the road are you a workout guy or are you a running guy do you do anything like that to keep your I, brain I'm not, I, i'm not usually a running guy i do mm. treadmill do a little cardio like yeah. airmaster or treadmill and do resistance uh weight and uh so my routine on the road is on a gig day i go to the gym and work out for a good hour hour and a half cardio, resistance, get the blood going, get some resistance going. And then I'll have lunch 
go to the gig, have sound check at around four, have dinner catering at the gig, mm-hmm. do a gig for three hours, and then there's a little bite or a party and a bite later, uh, and go to bed. And then the next day, uh, go to bed late because Paul likes to party, and uh, go to bed, get up a little later, and not do anything the next day except whatever I feel like doing. Go to a Got restaurant, it. you know, roll out of the, the hotel room at midday, you know, a uh, little bit more chill. So it's workout day of the show because it gives me mm-hmm. energy and, uh, and restore on the day after. Was Etta instrumental in you getting sober, if I may ask? Um, I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't say she was instrumental in that, although only to the degree that being with her was, you know, so she was, as I said earlier, recovering from a heroin addiction yeah. uh, and now uh, clear of, of heroin, but she still liked to dabble in other things. Uh, so I'm kind of sober. Okay. Learn to dabble with Etta. And <laughs> it sounds know, like a television show. Learn to dabble with Etta. Yeah. We'll be right back. So, you know, I, uh, like any good lead guitar player was, uh, you know, had to, had to learn how to do that mm-hmm. to some degree. And I think maybe that might've sped my, uh, the trajectory of my great downfall in the mid eighties. Yeah. When it was just like, Oh my God, if I don't stop, I'm going to ruin everything. And that's basically where it came to. Good on you. 34 years is great. And most of my listeners know that I've been sober for 21 years as well. So yeah. that's, um, uh, yeah, it works for us, right? When's your anniversary, sober anniversary? January 29th. Nice. Mine's April Fool's Day. So, <laughs> Perfect. That well, was not an April Fool's I, joke. It, yeah, because I slipped once, and my original date was somewhere in March. I slipped once, got sober again a year later, and just kind of rounded off my new date. Got it. A fitting date. Well, look, I, I want to be good with your time here, but I got to talk about your solo stuff before I let you go. You did a record called, I'm going to screw the name up, Ando Magneto. You did not screw it up. That's how I pronounced it. That's not how it looks written. It looks like Mondo Magneto. Of course. Yeah. Mondo Magneto. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was 2006 or something. Five. Yeah. Six. Man. Let me first say, because when I was researching this, I didn't know you had a solo record out. So I got to go back when I was running the other day and revisit that. Vinyl is my track. Oh, thank you, man. Vinyl is my track. Somebody stole your vinyl and and then you're lost, right? Yeah. Brian, how would you describe your sound as a solo artist? Wow. Well, I don't know. I guess... That would be for someone else to, to come up with. Uh, I, I just think of myself as being sort of a sum of all of my roots and influences. Yeah. But, you know, um, I'm more of a character band styled singer than I am like a full, like legit, like all of you Petersons, like you guys <laughs> are singers. I'm a singer of my songs, you know, like I ain't going out on a karaoke night and like blasting <laughs> fucking behemoth rhapsody or something no, go sing britney spears i'll get your do any okay? of that stuff i'm totally jealous <laughs> but um 
Yeah, so on a singing level, I, I like, you know, the British Invasion stuff and the blues guys and the garage rock. I'd be like somewhere around, you know, the Stones and the Animals and totally. that kind of vibe. Seems like uh, almost I, early rock and roll you harken back to. Yeah, yeah, I would guess. But, you know, I'm just the sum of my parts, man. What can I say? Yeah, aren't we all? Yeah. And and by the way, your guitar sounds are always outrageous and and. and your your actual parts are so inventive and memorable and uh, interesting, and that's what I like about your music. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the bayonets with our buddy Oliver and, and Lucretia. Yeah. Tell me how that yeah. came about. Well, so uh, the album that you're talking about, Monomagneto, my first one, yeah, uh, you know, featured some songs that I asked. Uh, I had met Oliver around town in Los Angeles through a group of friends, and I guess he had heard I had a hit song that I wrote for Smokey Robinson in the 80s. And so he being a great songwriter uh, was having hits around the same era. Right. He, he was kind of like, dude, we should get it together. And then we did get together and we formed a friendship and a musical respect. And, a, uh, and he uh, was instrumental in some of the writing and some of the playing on that album and uh, you know, I traded him some stuff to use his studio and oh, he would cool. come out of the room and I help, know that. you know, with sounds, he was so into it. You know, you'd be getting guitar sound. He goes, no, wait, try this guitar. <laughs> so it's like really, really <laughs> explosive and energetic in that way. And yeah. that song, a vinyl, you know, he helped get the guitar for the main guitar. Um, what else, you know, like a lot of the songs on the record. So anyway, Oliver and I became good friends. I did another album, uh, This Way Up, in uh, 09. And when it was time to start doing a third album, I came to him and I said, hey, you want to write some songs for this one? He goes, yeah, I mean, I would, but I'd rather just do a band. And I go, okay, let's do that. Oh. It was, it was really that simple. I said, okay, that sounds like fun. Let's do that. I don't care. I, I'm not like I need to be like, Ryan Ray. It's like, I just like playing music and having a laugh. You but know. you guys got a lot of uh, a lot of credit from from some really big people on that. I mean, you put the record out, and didn't you get a phone call from Little Steven? Yeah, so we we worked on this record together. It started out as just a series of singles. We were going to put one out every eight weeks, yeah, you know, for fun and for free. Maybe do a T shirt or a contest with each one, right? And uh, we put out the first one, which is a single called "Sucker for Love." Um, put it out ourselves on, on, you know, whatever, or just on social media. And uh, we did a video for it, a very silly video you can find online, um, Sucker for Love. And uh, I remember tweeting out the song or the video and getting a message from Maureen Van Zant, Stevie's long, lovely wife, long-time wife. Maureen answers and goes, Steven really loves this song, I think is how the message went. Loves this track. I turned him on to it. It was Valentine's Day. Wow. That was the release day. It was that day. And she, he wrote the next day, said, what is this? What is the Bayonets? Where can I find some more? Who are you? What is this thing? <laughs> That's a nice phone I, call. Do you mind if I do an edit? Uh, you can use it or not. I'm going to play it on my radio show. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, and uh, that yeah. began a relationship with little Stephen, who was a big fan of the Bayonets and played 
I think it was six singles off yeah. of one after another, calling them the coolest song in the world. So we were getting quite a lot of radio play and actually made, you know, actual money because Sound Exchange, uh, a payment system, a payment portal for songwriters and artists, mm-hmm. um, is actually, you know, paying some money, you know. And anyway, it's so- good to hear it considering, you know, <laughs> The state of the music business as of this moment. Yeah, it's right. To hear. I mean, if it was, if I was depending on streams, you know, ain't nothing. But <laughs> if you're getting airplay as a single and it's um, on terrestrial, uh, you know, satellite radio, or whatever, yeah, satellite radio mm-hmm. as well, you're you're you can make some money. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. So you've also been putting out a series of singles over the last what, five or six years as well after the bayonets? Let's see. Now, it, it's three years. I, my first one was early 2017, and here we are in 2020. So, yeah, a little more than three years. Okay. And um, I'm on my – I'm dropping a new single. Uh, when? When is that coming out? Good. When is your air date for this? The, uh, the middle of November. So – you might have just heard our brand new single. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, see how I did that? Yes, uh, you good, yeah. you. We broke it on November 13th, and uh, little Steven is playing it in maximum rotation. It's a, it's a solo single, and it's called Got a New Thing. Oh, great. Congratulations, man. Record. After the Bayonets, uh, little Steven reached out to me and said, would you like a solo deal on Wicked Cool Records? And who might argue? I said yes. Great as that. So yeah. you actually have a label that you have to turn on a record to. Do you have someone to report to? I have someone to report to. He's like a great A&R guy. He calls me and says, why don't you try a little less this and a little more that? Why don't we start with the intro? And I'm like, whoa, 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 really? It's like having an actual A&R man. No kidding. Uh-huh. Which, for the audience who doesn't know, that's artist and repertoire. And it was a, a role of, of a group of people within a record label back in the day who would serve as a liaison between the artist and the label to give the label what they're looking for from that artist. Right. And he by does the, it me, yeah. By the way, I really like ain't, I Ain't Superstitious as well. Thank you. And Gia, uh, what's Giambati? G Chambodi. 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 Chi is singing unbelievable on that. And what a cool thing to honor Willie Dixon too, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, Willie Dixon. Amazing. And when it came time to do that record, I wanted to do it like Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart's version from right. 68. Because that's why I was turned on to that song. It's how I but then you go and rediscover, you know. Alan Wolf's version. And you're like, oh, well, mackerel. And so what we did was we pulled some of the lyrics that Rod Stewart couldn't pull off or didn't want to sing. We pulled them into this new version and had a female singer, Gia Chambodi, sing the hell out of it, sing the yeah. pants off of that song. For sure. And deliver these lyrics in a way that sounds fresh because it's now coming from a woman. So a very empowered, you know, strong woman point of view. Brian, what's left for you to do? I mean, what excites you about continuing to play music? Because 
you can have you have what could be considered to be the best sideman gig in the history of sideman gigs but mm. still you want to create what i guess there's a what part of me that you know um still would want to do something as well as play with paul or with edda or with whoever you know i'm lucky enough to play with but you know there's that drive inside where as a young kid I was like rewriting famous folk songs and making up new words and playing them for my friends as if they were my own. Of course they weren't, but there's some part of me that got into music songwriting vis-a-vis my sister, Jean, Jim and Jean, and was empowered by them and sort of lifted up by them. And so I, it's just a drive. I don't know. I, I just love writing arranging playing recording music i I just love it so it's just what i'm going to do if i'm not on tour i'm i'm or even if i'm on tour i'm planning on the next break to go into the studio it's just it's like food and air for me i have to that's great and i'm glad to hear that paul supports that and, and gives you feedback and all that that's man that's cool because they could go the other way with that it's like no 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 you can't do that so to hear that is is really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, and tell me again the name of the single and what day it comes out. Yeah, so this one just debuted November 13th. Got it. On, on Little Steven's Underground Garage, Sirius XM Channel 21, which is a great channel. Uh, and it's called Got a New Thing. And uh, you may have seen the video. It's awfully fun. And it features one Abe Laboreal Jr. Oh, excellent and vocals along with me and scott schreiner from weezer on bass great 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 brian thank you i cannot thank you for spending an hour with us on music on the run i mean i i know you're a busy guy and uh it really means a lot to me that you take the time to to come on and do this with me so thank you so much it's been a pleasure man thank you so much for having me paul i appreciate it great to have you man uh you guys, episode 26 is in the books. That's right. Music on the Run. We'll see you in two weeks and go get Brian's single. See you in a minute. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, always say yes to the gig. Yeah.